It has been a long time since the last time I was able to teach on this message. We're looking at the Great Tribulation and particularly what the book of Revelation says about it. If you remember back, the book of Revelation is our template or our instructions or the guide for all that is going to happen at the end times prior to the coming of the Lord. And so we should be able to go to the Revelation and find all that we need to know about the events and the circumstances uh, leading up to Jesus' return to this earth. And so what we wanted to do, as a, apart from looking at other passages of Scripture as kind of our model, we, want to start with the, we wanted to start with the book of Revelation, and then once we see what the book of Revelation has to say, we kind of fit everything else into that. And uh, another reason why that's important will come out tonight as we uh, go through our study Lord willing, and we'll see how far uh, we get. So here are some of the points that we've covered so far. We looked at the meaning of the word tribulation, and then we uh, talked about how believers will experience tribulation in general. And then, uh, you know, of course, we have the specific one that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Now, in the book of Revelation, you have five uses of the word tribulation, and only one of those, as we have seen, can be applied to what is commonly designated as the Great Tribulation. The other ones are more broad in their application of what tribulation is all about. And there was only one that has to do with the end uh, time or a particular intense tribulation, and that is found in Revelation chapter 7. So we looked at that, and then as we uh, come to this next part here, we see that... uh, There's one tribulation, it will be time of death and intense suffering, and this would be a worldwide kind of uh, tribulation that is experienced, and it will take place before the sixth seal is opened. So we'll talk more about that uh, this evening, all right? So those are the main points that we have covered already, and this evening I want to go to the next point, and it has to do with the horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, do you all know what I mean when I'm talking about the horsemen of the apocalypse? You know, you know what I'm referring to there? All right, so we'll, we're going to read about it now in case you don't. And they are found in Revelation chapter 6. So please turn in your Bibles to Reve- Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to talk a little bit about the horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, I uh, was looking for an image. I don't know how well you can see that. Maybe, uh, Will, we can turn off some of the lights up here on the stage. I don't need to see anything, so maybe if we can turn some of these lights off, we can uh, see that a little bit better. Not so great, but anyway. I I was uh, searching for images on the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and there's some pretty amazing artwork that's out there. And of course, they're depicted, these horsemen are depicted in so many... uh, various ways. Uh, some of them, I, I, I don't know what the, I, I don't know what the source for the picture is. Maybe it's just kind of, you know, they're just, whatever's fanciful, you know, to the artist, they're just kind of drawing all, all kinds of things. And then others are trying to be a little closer, a little truer to what the Bible says. So I thought this was kind of a, a good uh, middle of the road type of picture depicting the horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, What we want to talk about first is the timing and the identity of the four horsemen. So let's let's start by looking at Revelation chapter 6, and we want to read the first four horsemen, which which takes us from verse 1 until verse 8. So let me read that, and you can follow along as I read it. So this is Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, 
And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death and by the beasts of the earth. All right, so those are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and you'll see they correspond to the opening of a seal on this scroll that Jesus has taken. And uh, we're, we'll uh, take some time to look at that some more as well. But So Jesus has taken this scroll, and he begins to open it. He opens the first seal, and you have the white horse. He opens the second seal, and you have the red horse. He opens the third seal, and you have the black horse. He opens the fourth seal, and you have the pale horse. And so there's this uh, one right after another, and they are descriptions. And I think in, broad, in a broad sense, they are descriptions of what happens on the earth. So each, each horseman, and I'll just refer to them as horsemen, each horseman is something that represents a generalized kind of trouble upon the earth. And I believe that it covers the period of time from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. And I'll kind of say some more about that as we go through this. Now, uh, typically, the popular view is this, that you have this white horse, and on the white horse, the rider carries a bow, and the bow is one, it doesn't say that it has an arrow in it. Okay, so you have this white horse, and on it, you have this man who is carrying a bow that does not have an arrow in it. And so you have this uh, presentation that this white horseman is the Antichrist. And so if you go back to Daniel, you have uh, the Antichrist. He makes this covenant with the people of Israel for one week. And of course, that one week represents seven years. And it says that in the, in the midst of that, he will break the covenant. And that's when all the trouble starts. You know, he declares himself to be God and he causes people to worship him and, and all of these things. Um, so this is kind of the popular view of this white horseman. He is sitting on a white horse, mean, meaning it is the horse of the victor. He is going forth and he is victorious. He has a bow, which is a weapon, but there's no arrow in it. And so he, it is often said that the Antichrist, uh, in the first half of the tribulation, he will go forward, he will conquer the world, but he won't do it through military means. He will do it through diplomacy. After all, the bow doesn't have an arrow in it. He will do it through diplomacy. He will basically conquer the world in that fashion. And then at the midway point, he uh, begins to require everybody to worship him. And then there's war and, and all of these things. So that's kind of the popular view. But I want us to uh, think about that for a second. Because when we go to the second, third, and fourth horses... We do not see any of them depicted as an individual who will show up on the earth and do something like, you know, cause war or be the one who leads war or be the one who causes uh, famine or be the one who causes death and so on. They're, they're not personified in an individual like the white horse is personified as the Antichrist, an individual. And so we have to ask our question, are we being, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we being consistent if we're going to say that the first one is a person, the Antichrist, and the second, third, and fourth ones are not people? Are we being consistent in the way that we're interpreting the, the passage? And I don't think that we are. Now, before you start to freak out on me and, uh, and my uh, saying that the first horseman isn't the Antichrist, uh, none of the things that we believe about the Antichrist necessarily are changed if we don't view the first horseman as the Antichrist. In other words, we don't have to view the first horseman as the Antichrist in order to have what we believe you know, the Antichrist will do. I mean, we get that from all the other passages, and uh, there's nothing about this first horseman that actually contributes to our understanding of the Antichrist. And so I think if we're going to be consistent we don't want to interpret the first one as a person, the Antichrist, and not do that with the other three. And if we're not going to do it with the other three, we shouldn't do it with the first one. So this is, this is like uh, 
Bible study instruction here, how to interpret the Bible. And we want to be consistent in our approach to Scripture. There's another thing that we have to be careful of. He has a bow, but it is said that he does not have an arrow in it. Now, that's what's called an argument from silence. So uh, if you look up these pictures of the horsemen, you will find a good number of them where there is an arrow knocked in the bow, ready to fire. And that's because it is presumed if you have a bow, you are ready to use it with an arrow. Uh, To say that the bow doesn't have an arrow is to is to kind of contribute to what the passage says when it doesn't really say it. It may not have an arrow. It may have an arrow. It just doesn't tell us. It says he has a bow. And you can, you can assume he's got an arrow in it, but it doesn't say. It doesn't say it doesn't have it. It doesn't say it does have it. And so to build an argument because of something that it doesn't really say here in the text, we just have to be careful when we're doing that. We, we just want to make sure that we stick with what the Bible is telling us and then build from there our understanding of Scripture. So what I'm saying is this, this horseman who goes forth to conquer, conquering and to conquer, he is depicted as having a bow, and uh, whether or not it has an arrow in it may not be pertinent to you know who he is and what he's doing. We, we don't need to... We don't need to uh, be concerned about that. All right. Now, I want to, to show you. You may have heard of this man, John Walvoord. He was a professor, I think, at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, boy, maybe 70 years ago. <laughs> How time flies. I, I mean, I used to consider, I was young, and I used to, you know, there he was, and I used to kind of, all right, I'm, I'm getting pretty old here. but And then uh, he's... Uh, He's quoting Dwight Pentecost, and that, that might be a, a little bit more of a familiar name, Dwight Pentecost, and he's really a champion of our popular view of the end times. And so you find him quoted a lot with respect to the end times. Now, now here is the issue. If we take the horsemen, the four horsemen, we're trying to, in the popular view, we're trying to take the horsemen and figure out where in this tribulation period, the seven-year period, they fit. So if the Antichrist is on this white horse and he conquers by peace, and we know from other scriptures that the Antichrist doesn't cause trouble until the middle of the tribulation period, then the first horseman must be somewhere in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, and then the other four horsemen have to come, you know, war and famine. Those come after the Antichrist starts to cause trouble, okay? which means it's going to be after the first three-and-a-half-year period. So this is the the quote from uh, Dwight Pentecost. It says, as Dwight Pentecost points out in his book, Things to Come, and I've underlined this next part because I... uh, Will, we're kind of going off the side. I don't don't think you can fix that, can you? No, don't worry about it. I don't think you can do that, but... All right. It says... Now, I have this next part uh, underlined... Because I think he's right on when he says this. It says, The order of events in Revelation and the order of events in Matthew, that's Matthew 24, are strikingly similar. All right? So he's making this comparison, Pentecost is, between Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus talks about the end times, and the order of the events in Revelation, particularly these, you know, the seal judgments and so on. And I think he's right on, on that. So then he says war, that's A, war, B, famine, C, death, D, martyrdom, E, the sun and the moon darkened with the stars falling, F, divine judgment. It should be obvious that the events of Revelation have their background in previous prophecies, namely the prophecies that Jesus made, which aids in interpreting John's symbolic revelation. Now what's interesting here is that he compares he quotes the the passages from matthew with revelation he's he's just like going he says war and he's matthew 24 6 and 7 and revelation 6 3 and 4 famine matthew 24 7 and revelation 6 5 and 6 so he goes through each one of the seals and he's he's showing how there's a passage in matthew where jesus says it and another passage in revelation in the seals here where you know the prophecy says it so he's kind of showing how there's a strong correlation between Matthew and Revelation chapter 6. So, then he says, 
the evidence. Now, now here's the conclusion, and this is the part where we might want to just kind of think about it a little bit more. The evidence points to the conclusion that describes the final period, probably the final three and one half years, climaxed by the second coming of Christ to set up his kingdom. So what he's saying is this. You have the first three and a half years, which is a, a period of relative peace. Okay, And then you have the second half of the tribulation where you have bam, 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 you know, all of these horrible things that are coming upon the earth. All right? So, so, uh, so this is what, what he's um, saying here. Now, I am going to try to switch here, and I don't know how this is going to work, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. Okay, so let's, let's try this. I'm going to try to draw on the screen. So you have a seven-year tribulation period. There you go. Can you see that? All right, so in the middle, you have the Antichrist. He comes on the scene. Now, uh, as we... As we unfold, as these horses come forward, you, you have this. You have in the first half, you have the white horse, which is the Antichrist in peace, you know, conquering by peace. And then you have the red horse, the black horse, and then the pale horse in the second half of the tribulation period. Now, you have... Here, you, th- th- this, this is the first four seals. Right? The, these horses, they're the first four seals. Okay? Right? All right. Now, you still have, you know, seal number five, number six, and number seven. When you open the seventh seal, does anybody know what you get? The seventh seal equals the seven the seven trumpets, okay? So when he opens the seventh seal, you have the seven trumpets that come out. So we'll just say seven, seven trumpets. Now, here's where it becomes a little bit sticky if, if this is going to be our timeline because the fifth trumpet is called the first woe, the sixth trumpet is called the second woe, and the seventh trumpet is called the third woe. So you have these three woes associated with the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh trumpet. So if you have the seventh seal equal to the seven trumpets, and within the seven trumpets you have these three trumpets that are you know, consecutive in order, then there is an issue that arises in this. And let me show it to you. And I'm going to need some of your help here. The first, uh, we want to look at several verses. So I need somebody to look up Revelation 9, 5. Anybody want to volunteer and read that for us? Okay, Andrew. The second one is Revelation 11.2. Jennifer, you want to read that? And then Revelation 13.5. Okay, Tina. So the first one, Revelation 9.5, is the first woe, the fifth trumpet. Revelation 11.2 is the second woe, or the sixth trumpet. And Revelation 13.5 is the third woe, or the seventh trumpet. And uh, we're going to see something uh, pretty interesting here. So let's read... The first woe, the fifth trumpet. Yeah. All right, what was the time frame there? Five months. That's the first woe, the fifth trumpet. All right, the second woe. All right, 42 months. That's the second woe. And then the third woe? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemy and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. All right, so another 42 months. Now, this is just the fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet, and the seventh trumpet. And you have a total of how many? Any math, math whizzes out there? What? Seven years, 
It's seven. It's how many, how many months total? How many years? All right, 89, which is equal to 89 months, which is equal to seven point seven and a quarter years, basically. All right, seven point seven and five months. Now, does anybody see a problem here? If we're trying to fit everything within the seven-year tribulation period, just the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets already are longer than the, the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation period. So this is why I keep on saying that. We have to look at Revelation as kind of our template for what's going on and, and uh, kind of take the other passages and fit them into what's going on here in Revelation. So um, why am I saying this? Well, there's one more thing that I want us to do, and, and this is where I want us to just take a quick look at Revelation 6 and Matthew chapter 24. Anthony, can you help me pass these out? All right, so I, I put together a little chart, and basically it flushes out what Pentecost said in his book as far as uh, the, the, the passage of Scripture here. And what we're doing is we're comparing the, six, the seals of Revelation 6 and Matthew chapter 24. So as uh, um, Anthony passes that out, what I, what I want us to see is this, that the four horsemen, rather than being descriptions of trouble that the earth is going to experience in a seven-year tribulation period, they actually represent the trouble that the earth is going to experience for the, from the time Jesus came the first time to the time he comes the second time. So it is a much broader uh, view of the end times and what is happening as we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus. So let's just kind of keep that in mind as we look at this handout. Now, you might want to turn to, um, we can turn to, I already read from Revelation chapter 6, so we can turn to Matthew chapter 24 here, and we can look at some of the specific things that Jesus has said. And, and I have to say that even though this might sound a little bit different, it really does not change much as far as the current popular view of the, the end times. It really does not change much as far as what the events are that take place during the, the tribula tribulation period. What it does do, however, is it broadens, it broadens our perspective and our understanding of what really is the end times. So we'll uh, come back to that uh, in a few moments. So in Revelation chapter 6, you have the first seal, which is a white horse conquering and to conquer. And Pentecost and others compare that to what it says in verse 5. I'm going to read Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. It says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. All right? So the white horse, rather than being the Antichrist who goes forth to conquer the world by di diplomatic means, is actually a judgment upon the earth where you have all of these uh, false prophets and false teachers and false Christs going into the world to deceive people. It's a judgment against the earth. You have uh, a judgment against the people of the earth with these false teachers and misleading people and and causing them to not hear the truth and to even potentially not be saved because of, their, of this judgment, because of these false Christs and false prophets and teachers. And you can read in 1 John, and he says, he says there's an Antichrist coming, but already there are lots of Antichrists in the earth, and there are lots of false teachers. And Jesus here is warning of false teachers. And so I think that the white horse is really a reference to these false Christs. It is a judgment on the earth, from the time of Jesus, his first coming, all through, right through us, until Christ's come, Christ comes the second. Hey, just look around, right? I mean, there are false religions, and there are false teachers, and there are false prophets all over the world. You don't have to look very hard to find anything like that. And as Christians, part of our duty is to proclaim the truth because of all of these false ideas that are in the world. 
It is a result of sin and it is present and we always have to be on guard to protect ourselves and to guard the truth. As a matter of fact, there's a verse, I can't remember where right now. Um, there's a verse that says that the, the church is the guardian or the pil- guardian of the, the pillar of the truth. I, I, I forget the exact wording, but the church is what preserves and guards and keeps the word that has been given to us, which is Jesus Christ. All right, so that's the first seal, the white horse. It corresponds to the false Christs in Revelation chapter 24. And then you have the second seal, the red horse, which is war. So in verses 6 and 7, it says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. Now, from the time of Jesus until our time, uh, well, and through our time, there have been wars on the face of the earth continuously. It is not something that has ever abated or, or relaxed. Uh, there have been wars that people have thought they would be the last war. Nobody would ever fight again after that. What war, is that, what war am I referring to? That's right, World War I, the war to end all wars. That is the hope of people. But uh, if you go back just a few years, the, we, were, we were embroiled in a civil war here in our country, and, and we're not unique. I mean, it's just war after war. We were considering the war in Ukraine in our Sunday school class, and uh, Craig Carter, I guess he had looked it up or heard it on a broadcast or something, he says there are currently over, I don't know, uh, 70 or I forget what number he said, wars on the face of the earth today in different parts of the world. It's just, just people fighting all over the place. And you don't have to have nation against nation to have wars, right? I mean, if we just look at our own personal lives and look at all the contentions that we have, you know, just between us, ourselves, you know, people fighting against people uh, over and over and over again. So it's just a, a part, a result of the sinfulness of people on the face of the earth. The third seal is the black horse and famine. In verse 7 in Matthew 24, so you have the false Christ, you have the wars, and verse 7 says, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's the war again. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And notice the, the phrase there, the beginning of sorrows. These point to us, they're like labor pains of a pregnant woman pointing us that the birth is coming, but it hasn't yet come. We're not there yet. And so all of these things that are happening on the earth, they point us, that Jesus, point us to the fact that Jesus is returning, amen? But he, has, he isn't coming back yet. These are, these are just things that we will see as we approach the time of his return. And then you have the fourth seal, the pale horse, or death. Uh, verses 9 and 10 talk about tribulation and de- death. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. And then he says again, there will be many false prophets. Then many false prophets will rise and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Now, interestingly enough, if we go back to Revelation chapter 6, we look at the fifth seal, which is martyrs. So just like Jesus said, they are going to, they, you are going to be killed. So we have had believers throughout history from the time of Jesus die for their faith. As a matter of fact, there was a period in history where martyrdom was seen as, as something to aspire to. And during a particular period of, of, uh, of persecution, the Christians were lining up to die and to give their life to, for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, others, you know, tried to stop them and say, don't get so excited about this. You know, you've got a purpose here on this earth. But anyway... Uh, there, there has been persecution against Christians throughout the centuries um, and throughout history and even now throughout the world. So we were, I, I read that book by D- David Jeremiah and he has a very large section there giving example after example of current day places where Christians are being persecuted and they're being thrown in prison and, um, and they're dying for their faith. Now thankfully that has not been true for us here in America 
yet. We, we have freedom uh, to worship and praise the Lord for that, but that's not true in every part of the world. But I think we're beginning to see, if you start to say, or if you mention that you're a Christian, even now, here in the United States, if you say that you're a Christian, or if you begin to take a stand for some of the Christian positions that are contrary to what the world is pushing, you will, you will experience some backlash. I don't know if anybody is, has anybody here experienced any kind of persecution because you have said that you're a Christian and because of your position that you have taken on a cultural issue? Is anybody? All right, Alan has. Is anybody else? Um, all you have to do, just try it. Just post on Facebook some, sometime about something and uh, you'll, you'll see how vicious people can, can get. You know, when you can hide behind your computer screen and nobody has to, you don't have to talk to somebody face to face. Woo! People can get pretty vicious there that way, right? So um, anyway, um, we're not experiencing physical persecution necessarily yet, but there is persecution. If you're vocal about your Christianity and you take a stand for some of the moral issues in our culture that are hot potatoes right now, you will experience some persecution. All right, Um, that's the fifth seal. Now, once the fifth seal takes place, or once you have this tribulation and death that Jesus is talking about, then there are these other events. And I think here, at this point, Jesus, Jesus fasts for, fast forwards, fast forwards to the end times. And he says in verse 15, Matthew 24, 15, he says, Therefore, because of all this, therefore, when you see... Now, now here becomes something specific of the end times. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and so on. So here we have all of a sudden a very specific event, the abomination of desolation. He has moved away from the generalities. You're going to have war and false Christs and earthquakes and pestilences and many of you are going to die he moves away from those generalities and he comes right down to a very specific thing when you see the abomination of desolation then look out now this is very similar to what the prophet daniel does he will say this nation is going to follow this nation and then this nation is going to be followed by this nation and then you come to the last nation which is the roman empire and then all of a sudden, you know, he'll give some generalities, but then he becomes very specific. And four times in the book of Daniel, you have reference to the abomination of desolation, which is a very specific thing. So Jesus says, when you see the abomination, there's going to be flight, and then you're going to have the great tribulation, this great tribulation, this tribulation like you have never seen before. Let him, verse 17, on the, who's on the housetop, not go down or take anything out of his house, And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So it's, it's kind of interesting, if you go back to the book of Revelation, you might want to keep your finger there because I might come back to it. But if you go back to the book of Revelation, you have the first seal, the second and the third and the fourth seal, which are the four horsemen. Then you have the fifth seal, which is the martyrs, just like Jesus said. And then you have the sixth seal, which is the cosmic disturbances, which, he has, uh, which Jesus says is going to happen after the tribulation of those days. And then you have this this uh, interlude in Revelation chapter 7 where he actually talks about, this is the one instance in the book of Revelation where he talks about the great tribulation. It's the only place. And it just kind of follows right in line with the chronology of Matthew chapter 24. So you have the great tribulation, you have more false Christs, and then you have the sixth seal. And this is where it really gets close to the return of Christ. The sixth seal in Revelation is cosmic disturbances, which is what Jesus says in verse 23 of Matthew 24. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, don't believe it. For false Christ of false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders and deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, don't go out 
Look, he is in the inner, inner rooms. Do not believe it. And here it is, verse 27. For as the lightning comes from east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is there, the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the heavens, and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So you have the sixth seal, the cosmic disturbances, just like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, and then you have his return, and then in verse 31, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, one end, from one end of heaven to the other. All right, so uh, that's the comparison between Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation chapter 6. Now, now here is one possible application of this, because there's this peculiarity that we find in the New Testament, and the peculiarity is this, that all the writers seem to think they are living in the last days, right? You, you all remember that? I mean, you could read Paul, and it says, you know, we're living in the last days, and John, and it doesn't matter who you're reading, they're all, there's this, this idea, this perception that we're living in the last days. Now, if we look at the book of Revelation, and we conclude that the first four or maybe five seals have already been opened, we are living in the last days. The events of Revelation have already begun to unfold and we are getting closer and closer to the return of Christ. And maybe that's why there is this anticipation that Jesus is coming because the events of his coming have already been put in motion and nothing can stop it. All right, so that was uh, the full blast version of um, the seals and the horsemen and everything. And I, I know I went really fast and you might have some questions. So does anybody have any, any questions <laughs> or any thoughts? <laughs> Anthony, go ahead. Well, see, the fifth seal is the martyrs. And I think we've already experienced martyrdom throughout the history of the church. Well, you, one seal well, you have one seal, which is the cosmic disturbances. And then, um, yeah, which we haven't gotten to yet because that's, yeah, I mean, if you compare, if you look on the chart here, you'll see the first five seals on the left side there. And then you have all of these special events, the particular events, the abomination of desolation and the flight and the great tribulation. Those have not happened yet. So, so that's why, you know, we, we put ourselves in the midst of the unfolding of the fifth, of five of the seals but we have not yet quite gotten to the sixth seal because the Antichrist hasn't come yet. There has been no abomination of desolation. There is the, the great tribulation hasn't taken place yet. Which one? The abomination of desolation. So that's a phrase that comes from the book of Daniel in four places it's mentioned. So he's talking about, in each of those cases, he's, he uh, talks about the nations. There's, it's pretty consistent in the book of Daniel. There's a number of prophecies after Daniel chapter 6. And they all follow the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2, which was Nebuchadnezzar's statue. So you remember Nebuchadnezzar's statue? You had uh, the head of gold and, you know, just there were four different uh, sections. And, and it talks about uh, Babylon, and then the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then you have the Romans. And, but the Romans, you know, there's going to be this great stone that's cut out, and it crushes the feet, which is made of iron and clay, and the whole thing will come collapsing down. So that prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 becomes the model for all of the prophecies in the rest of the book of Daniel. It just kind of emphasizes different parts of it. But one thing is pretty consistent. At some point, it turns from generally talking about the nations to that specific, the rock that is cut out and crushes the feet the thing. So, uh, I don't know if I'm explaining this good, but you have the, the general nations, you know, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, but then it moves to the rock, which is Christ, who comes and he establishes his kingdom. And part of Christ establishing his kingdom is this Antichrist who comes and desecrates the temple, stops the sacrifices, and, um, and basically is what is unholy, the abomination of desolation, sitting where he should not. So it's, it's, a lot of people believe...
He, he goes into the temple, and that's where, like Second Thessalonians says, he declares himself to be God. He shouldn't be in the temple, and he is not God. So that's like kind of the abomination of desolation. When you see that, then know that you're at the end, end of times. So the abomination of desolation, I believe, is a reference to the Antichrist when he appears on this earth, and he is in your face, God, everybody has to worship me kind of thing. All right, that, that's kind of the abomination of desolation. It's a reference to the Antichrist at the end of times. So that's the book of Daniel. Four times it says that. When you come to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus reaffirms it. When you see the abomination of desolation, then know that the time is at hand. So he's affirming Daniel's prophecies. And then we come to the book of Revelation and we see how the Antichrist comes and he makes the statue and he requires everyone to get a number and he says, everyone must worship me. And if you don't get the number and if you don't worship me, I'm going to kill you. And that, that's, kind of the, that's kind of how the book of Revelation goes. So it, kind of, it fleshes out this abomination of desolation. All right, good question. Any other questions? Pam. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so the sixth seal. This is Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. This is the sixth seal, okay? It says, I looked when you opened the sixth seal, behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island moved out of its place. So I, I think that's a lot, to me, that's a lot bigger than the earlier reference to earthquakes. Just, you know, kind of, you, you have all of these earthquakes and they're just kind of not the earthquake. That's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, as we, as we come closer to Christ, the things that we have seen intensify. Uh, and so... I mean, we're not seeing the sun becoming black and the moon like blood and the stars, you know, falling from their courses of the heavens. Yeah, they talk about the red moon and there was a, there was a, there was a preacher who, was, who made a big deal about the blood moons and there were four and the last one was like last year sometime and, and nothing, nothing significant really happened except we got to go out and look at it and, oh, how nice, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, right. It is. It is scary now. Exactly. I mean, we the whole world freaked out over the coronavirus, and I was just one virus. I mean, yes, it's very scary, and and we ain't seen nothing yet. When when uh, when we get to the end times and the Antichrist is coming on the scene, it, it, you're either all in for Jesus or you're not in at all. It, there there is not any. Um, Middle ground like we have right now, that's all going to disappear. It's going to be intense. And it's a call for us to be faithful right now to Jesus. Because um, if we can't be faithful when it's easy, I don't know how we're going to be faithful when it's not so easy anymore. Yeah, if you're, yeah, well, that's a whole other topic to discuss there. <laughs> but. <laughs> One thing I will say for sure is if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about it because the coming of Christ is a joyous occasion for us even while the rest of the world is being trashed, if you know what I mean. I mean, we can rejoice. It's, it's like we're the Israelites and the plagues are hitting the Egyptians. It's pretty scary, but we're on the right side and we look at that and we see God fighting for us. And, and, um, and so it's an exciting thing for us. We do not need to fear the end times. Um, now, in the flesh, we struggle with that, right? I mean, don't we? I mean, we see these things, and, and, and many of us are caught up. All of us probably have been caught up in the coronavirus thing, and I was, again, one thing. But, uh, you know, we, we, all, we, we all react, uh, sadly, you know, according to our human nature. And, and that's part of 
part of uh, the battle of the Christian life is to become more like Christ and less like ourselves, <laughs> in a sense. You know, we want to we have greater faith and trust even through the hard times. And, and when we see these things, um, they, uh, they royal us. Let me give you an example. Um, in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the final, he has to cross the river at the end, and the river signifies death. And it's pretty interesting. He struggles with going across the river. In other words, he struggles with dying. Meanwhile, he's looking at some of these other people, and they're just kind of got smiles on their faces, and they're flying across the, the river. And, and, and the point is this. There, there are Christians, even though we're Christians, there are some who, whose faith is such that they trust and rejoice even at the time of death. And then there are others of us that the prospect of dying still is scary. It's still hard to face. And uh, it's not that one is better than the other necessarily. We all, have, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Some of us can deal with some things better than we can deal with other things. And so, I mean, this, this is true even on a personal level. So if I think of just my wife and I, um, the things that she struggles with are the are things that I don't struggle with. And the things that I struggle with She's like, well, she doesn't ever say this because she's too nice to say it, but if she, would, if she could just be honest, she would say, come on, get it together, man. Why are you struggling with that? You know, that, that's just kind of... <laughs> so it's, you know, we, we just have in our Christian life some strengths and weaknesses and we struggle with different things. And that's just the nature of our Christian, uh, you know, growth. So we have to be patient. That's another reason for us to be patient. It's very easy to judge and to look down on somebody who's not... Who's, who's not handling it like you are. We, we cannot judge others for that. We have to, to be the more mature and understand that um, I am not struggling by the grace of God and they're struggling. I have the responsibility and the duty to go up next to them and help them, not to look down on them because I'm not struggling and they are. We, we have to be more gracious and merciful than that and be ready to help each other. All right. That was good. Anything else? All right, and I'm sorry, and, Andrew. Yeah, you know, in all my years, every time I read that, it was just so like out there that I never even hung it on a hook. You know what I mean? It's like you take things that you like and you hang them on hooks and you think about them some more, and it's like, what Christ now? <laughs> That, that's me, but I, I, don't, I don't think that that just does not fit. This is a judgment. He opens the seal, and there's a judgment. He opens the seal, there's a judgment. He opens the seal. There's nothing positive about these judgments at all. The only positive thing is where they all end, and that's where Jesus is coming back. So, so no, I don't think, um, my view is that it does not refer to Christ. And, and again, you're personifying just the first one, but not the others. Again, it's just an inconsistency there. So I don't believe it's Christ, and I don't believe it's Antichrist. I think it's a general description of a judgment of, these fal- of falsehood that's in the world, of false Christ that's in the world. And again, it doesn't, take away, uh, it doesn't take away any of our understanding about Christ and his return. Or, if you believe it's Antichrist, it doesn't take away or change any of our understanding of Antichrist and what he's going to do at all when he comes all right all right anybody else any others alan all right tell me what isaiah 34 says and i might be able to help you with that you go ahead and read it Yeah, there are many passages in the prophets that uh, refer to the end times, and I think that especially the latter part of that 
uh, refers to it. Um, the, there's the, the phrase, the day of the Lord, which is a phrase that we looked at in Zechariah and Zephaniah and uh, some others. So you, you, the message of the prophets is the same. And what's interesting is that the bulk of the book of Revelation is not unique to the Bible. There's like a very high percentage, over 80% of the book of Revelation is found somewhere else in the Bible. And so you have in the midst of this uh, explanation of the details of the end times, it is, it is in corroboration with what the other prophets of the Old Testament have said would happen when you come to the end times. So just to kind of summarize there, when Jesus comes with the word, the sword of his mouth, he is going to slay the nations that have risen up to stand against him, and then he will rule them with a rod of iron. And so, you know, that's, that's a, the coming rule of Christ, I believe, on this earth um, towards the end there, or the, uh, after his return, I should say. All right, so that, that was kind of the, the quick and dirty ballpark answer to your question there. All right, anybody else? Hey, Pam? Yeah. Yeah, we are living in, in the last days, and, and he can make the events come just like that. I'm, so we don't know. It could happen really quickly. It could take some time. We don't know. But we have, to, we have to live proclaiming his return. He is coming soon. And we have to proclaim that. So uh, tell me your question again. <laughs> Prepare. Yeah. Well, we, got, we have to live like he's returning. And as a matter of fact, we have to live like we're going to see him soon, like tomorrow, right? Which could happen through our death. So in a sense, we have to always, we're, we're here for a short period of time, and our purpose is to proclaim him and to live for him. Yeah. So preparing for the end times, it's really more of just preparing yourself to live for Jesus today. That, that's, kind of, that, that's kind of the perspective that we ought to have live for him right now and you'll be ready for him when he comes it's like the oh yeah that reminds me of the you had the ten virgins and five of them got oil and lit their lamps they didn't know when he was coming but they were living like he was coming and you know doing what they were supposed to do and they had oil in their lamps half of them did and then the other half didn't <laughs> and so they were a little trouble when when he did show up so that's kind of the perspective make sure your lamp has oil in it today and you'll be ready when he does come yeah all right, any, other, any others? Any other comments or questions?